Welcome, adventurers. In a stone house atop a grassy hill, Colborn has come to the verge of discovering his magical powers. And soon, the beginning of a journey he never knew he would take. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon Colfin and Tova had returned to the house with the rising sun. Over a breakfast of eggs and fresh-baked bread, Tova spoke nearly non-stop, bits of food constantly flying from her mouth as she did her best not to let her eating interrupt her speaking, trying instead to accomplish both tasks at once. Geesley had given up after the third time of trying to tell Tova to please keep her mouth closed while she ate. Colfin's face held a somber expression to support Geesley, but his eyes sparkled with mirth. Tova went on about the many constellations her uncle had shown her and the animal noises they had heard from the nearby forest and what each one was. Unlike the other three present at the table, Colborn was not a morning person. Though he woke early every morning to see his daughter and wife off to their day's work, he himself preferred late nights of reading by the fire, and often crawled back into bed for a bell or two after breakfast. It seemed unlikely he would get such an opportunity today, and so he was drinking a large mug of black tea much faster than normal, to try to get his foggy brain on pace with his daughter's endless stream of words. A kick under the table from Geesley had prompted Colfin to say he must be getting on if he was going to take care of his business and still return in time for dinner. Farewells, and until tonight's had been made, and Tova was never more than a pace from her uncle, until he had placed his pack upon his back, passed out the front door, and was little more than a speck on the horizon. Only then did she set upon her normal chores for the day. Colborn spent the morning and early afternoon working on some correspondence. Tova and Geesley returned a bell before midday, and they ate some dried meats and preserved fruits, along with what bread remained from breakfast. After their meal, Geesley left the house with a kiss on Colborn's head and a stern look. Dinner, tonight. You are cooking dinner. With an embarrassed grin and a nod, Colborn accepted the task, reaching out to wrap his arms around her waist, hugging her tight. It ended with a gentle bat on the head. Let me go now, magic man. The plants ain't going to tend themselves. As soon as he had the house to himself again, Colborn was right back at the elvish book, face determined, fingers flexing. Today he took detailed notes on minor variations of finger movements, pronunciations of words, and timing. After almost three bells, he was exhausted but he was sure he was right on the edge of making it work. He was interrupted when Geesley stuck her head in the house. Tova had gone to get a hatchet she had accidentally left at last night's campsite a bell ago and was not yet back, probably playing with that stick again. She was going to retrieve their daughter. It was well past time she should have been doing her afternoon chores. Geesley stared at him, 
irritation moving on to him. And the next time I come through this door, ain't nothing gonna save you if I don't smell dinner being cooked. He assured her she had nothing to worry about and to go retrieve the little bird. As soon as the door shut, Colborne turned back to his notes. Almost a bell later, anxious that he should have started dinner already, fingers sore from constant use. He did it. He summoned the hand. It was clearly visible, a green-tinted blue, though translucent. It hung in midair, a half a pace above the table. Eyes wide, afraid of making a wrong move, he focused his thought and slowly willed the hand toward the kitchen counter. The hand dipped at his command, picking up an onion. A huge grin was on Colborne's face now. He made the hand turn. His intent was to throw the onion to himself and catch it. But so excited about his conjuration, so caught up in his disbelief that he had finally done it, that when he threw the onion, he was mesmerized by its flight. Right up until the moment it struck him squarely in the face. The hand vanished. Colborne shook his face, rubbing his nose, and then burst into laughter. Afraid he would forget, he summoned the hand again immediately. It came without difficulty. Colborne whooped and sent the hand dancing about the house. As he flew the hand to just before his face and poked his own nose, a voice that had been yelling at him from the back of his brain finally came through. Dinner. He cast his eyes at the candle in panic and then rushed to the kitchen. A half a bell passed in frantic cleaning and chopping. When another quarter bell had passed, the imminent doom of a well-earned scolding was beginning to fade. His lamb stew was a flint-fist household favorite. Not even Colfin would be able to tease him about this one. Colborne crumbled some herbs into the pot, which was just starting to bubble. A spoonful of broth to taste, a healthy shake of salt, a pinch more of pepper, another taste. There it was. He spun his chair round. Well, hells, no one was here yet. He had time to make some of his cheese and wild onion rolls. No scolding indeed. No, a big kiss was more like it. And Colfin would have to eat his words before he had any dinner. Another half bell and the rolls went into the oven. Rolls in, he paused. He should be sighing in relief on a job well done. But as he sat and listened, that was not what he felt at all. Through the kitchen window came the sounds of the farm. The chickens were squawking and clucking in a frantic sort of way. The cow mooed loud and prolonged, and then after a beat, it came again. The sheep and goats were bleeding as well. Forgetting all else, Colborne spun his chair and wheeled to the front door, opening it and then threw into the yard. The cacophony of animals was much louder outside the house. The noise was clearly an irritated one. The animals had not been fed yet. Geesley, Colborne called. Tova! The complaining calls of the animals rose at the sound of his voice, but there was no reply. He began to roll quickly toward the greenhouse, calling again. Nothing. He rolled into the greenhouse, 
nothing. Out the back and around the sides, nothing. To the barn, nothing. Something was wrong. Which way did Colfin say they would go? Toward the mountain. He rushed from the barn and made his way to the west side of the hill. Atop the hill, most of the grass was short, cropped low by grazing animals. Colborne's eyes cast about the ground and then down the hill for any sign of tracks. There had to be some. He rolled down the hill to where the grass began to grow taller. A quarter bell felt like two. He couldn't find any sign. What should he do? And then a voice back atop the hill. Uphill usually took some effort, but Colborne's powerful arms pumped fiercely, and he flew up the hill as if a breeze. Cresting the hill, two things hit him at the same time. The smell of burning and his brother's gleeful voice calling out. Colborne, Colborne, Colborne. This is truly it. You've no choice but to admit I'm the better cook now. Colfin stopped, curious by the wide-open front door, and then a broad smile as Colborne rushed toward him. Still unaware of his panic, Colfin piled on. Too late, my absent-minded brother. What's burnt cannot be unburned. He began to chuckle, but as Colborne covered the last twenty paces in a flash, Colfin's eyes widened, thinking he would have to jump aside to avoid being run down. Colborne clasped the brakes and his chair skidded to a stop on the grass. Colfin was in a crouch, hands extended. His face spilled through a series of expressions. Anger, as if Colborne intended to run him down for his mocking. Confusion as he saw the panic in his brother's eyes. Concern as Colborne's wild eyes pleaded with him. The camp, where is it? Colborne blurted out. The camp. Colfin slurred, still not comprehending. Where did you and Tova camp last night? Colborne yelled. Rather than talk, Colfin pointed. That way, just over a mile, two hills over. Colborne. What is the matter? Tova and Geesley are gone. Almost three bills now. Four bills. Oh, gods. Tova's been gone for almost four. Colfin had tried to calm him, saying there could be many explanations for their absence. But as he led them away from the farmstead and down the hill, there was no mirth left in his face. Eyes wide and searching. Face tense in concentration. When they reached the taller grass, Colfin didn't even pause, leading them to a spot some fifty paces south of where Colborne had been searching but a few moments before. Even Colborne could see the discoloration of the taller grass here, the place where someone had walked through. Tova. Geesley. Colfin kept up a steady pace, not waiting for Colborne to keep up as he wheeled up the grassy slopes. A few times Colfin paused to kneel, but they were brief, and whatever he saw did not draw him from his steady progress. Less than a quarter bell, and they came to the summit at the second hill. Here, Colfin was much more diligent. Without a word, he motioned for Colborne to keep his distance, not wishing for any evidence to be disturbed. Sol would pass behind Dromir's skur soon. Long shadows already crept down from the forest at the base of the mountain. In this light, the deep green of the forest, 
looked closer to black. Colfin was focused on an area of well-tamped down grass, centered around a patch that was cleared altogether. At the center of the clearing was a freshly dug pit, beside which was a scattered pile of wood. Last night's camp. Starting there, Colfin then moved out in concentric circles. Colborn wanted to scream at his brother to go faster, but he didn't, instead wringing his hands and rocking. Four passes out from the center of the camp, and Colfin stopped where the grass grew tall again on the west side of the hill. He looked a moment, passed a few steps into the grass, and then looked up toward the forest. Colfin muttered something Colborn could not hear, and then looked at him, motioning for him to follow. Down the last hill, and then up. From here, there were no more hills, only the rising slope to the edge of the forest, which lie less than a mile away. On this slope, the grass began to thin, the ground becoming rockier. Colfin had to slow considerably here, stopping quite often occasionally losing the trail, and then had to backtrack to pick it up again. The shadows passed over them. The air grew chill. Seventy paces from the forest edge, Colborn watched as Colfin slowed and then stopped. Colborn's stomach sank as his brother's hand went instinctively to his bow as he knelt. As the tracker turned, Colborn thought he would lose the contents of his stomach. In all his days, Colborn never forgot the look on his brother's face, nor the words that he spoke next. Svin. Svin tracks, Colfin said in a cold, flat tone. The Svin were terrible creatures. They valued strength above all else, power for the sake of power alone. They exulted in violence and had no respect for the lives of any but their own. All that they had, they had taken by force. Hated enemies of the dwarven people, the Sfin had taken the ancestral home of their mountain-dwelling cousins, the Granite Hammer Clan. But never had the Sfin come down this side of Drummer's Skur. Never had they, until now. There was noise, but Colborn did not hear it. His eyes were locked on Colfin's face. His lips were moving. He was talking. He was... Colborn, do you hear me? I should go back and get my unit. Who knows how many? No! Colborn snapped, words finally reaching his thoughts. Please no, brother. Geesley, Tove, please! Colfin let out a low growl, but drew his bow. In the times since, Colborn never remembered how long the next part took. Sometimes he remembered it as but a few bars, sometimes well over a bell. Colfin tracked. He followed. Sunner help him. He had followed. He could not remember because that part was not important. It was the clearing in the woods that they had come to. That clearing in the woods where a piece of him stayed for all of his remaining days. Colborn could still remember Colfin stopping, his carefully crouched walk ending, as he stood clumsily, bow 
falling from his hand. Colborn wheeled past his brother in a panic, forcing him aside, and then letting the wheels go, his chair coming to an awkward stop. Dead silence. And then a sound came out of him. A scream. A wail. A screech. One of those. Or all of those. He was out of his chair, dragging himself with his arms. Geesley was face down, hair splayed wildly. He rolled her over and retched. She was gone. The sound changed to a pleading. His head pounded, vision spinning. Tova, eyes frantic. The massive body of a sphin lay eight paces away. In its smaller rear leg was buried a hatchet. Their hatchet. In a wild movement, he crawled to the sphin. It lay atop something. He tried to push the body over, but could not get leverage, pleading for Colfin to come help. His brother was there. The sphin was rolled over. And then there was nothing but a crushing sensation. His wails stopped. His breath stopped. There was no sound. There was no world. In many ways, Colborn's life ended that day, and a life he never wanted began. Beneath the sphin was Tova, unmoving. Somehow, even in death, that stick was still clenched in her hand. Though the end had been broken to a sharp point and was driven into the sphin's neck, Anything after that, Colborn could not remember as anything more than a haze of disjointed images. Colfin had talked. Apologies. Blame. It was his fault. The sled was fashioned. Darkness. They somehow were back at the farm. Crawled. He had crawled the whole way back. Soul rose and set. People came. Food was brought. Condolences and concerned faces. Soldiers came. Hearthkeepers. Many, many had scoured the woods. Colfin later told him it was two days after they had been found that they lay Geesley and Tova to rest in the earth, behind the greenhouse facing the mountains. Geesley loved the mountains. And then at some point, there were less people. And then there was just Colfin. Leftover food, and silence, and Colfin. Ten days passed. Sometimes he slept. Other times he did not. Colfin made him eat. But other than that, they did not speak. On the eleventh day, Colborn went outside for the first time since the funeral rolling about with no particular destination. He stared long into the greenhouse. The vibrant colors of the many flowers within were fading to brown, not having been watered. He rolled behind the barn and stopped dead. There, hanging from the barn door, was the worn dummy, the one Tova had beaten and restuffed a hundred times. Beaten with that stick. Tears streamed down his face. And that's when he knew.
the mountain shadow reached out, touching the greenhouse. A quarter bell later, the house. When the gray had crept down the wall nearest them, Colborne reached down to his wheels and turned his chair. Two paces away, above a brown beard, braided and forked, his brother's eyes peered onto his face. This is your home, Colvin said quietly. Are you sure? Colborne returned his brother's gaze. That, he said, gesturing over his shoulder to the farm, is stones and wood, paint and thatch. A pause. What made it a home is gone now. There was quiet again. A tear streamed down his brother's face. Now, Colborne said, my little bird never got her chance to see the world, to have her adventure, so I'll do my best to see it for her, to spread some of the good that she would have. What say you? Colfin wiped away the tears and then gave him a stern nod. The ranger turned away from the farm as well, and like the shadows of the mountain, they made their way east. The unexpected loss of a loved one can lay us low, break apart our world as we know it, but in the aftermath of such times, there is often a strength we never knew we had. Please join me next week for the beginning of a new tale. Hey, people. Season four has begun, as you noticed. Um, it's kind of a sad one to start things off there, but it's just the way things are. I think I was listening or read on Twitter once. It was kind of something on, like, why do heroes' journeys always involve tragedy? And it was basically like, why else would you be out in the world uh, subjecting yourself to all these dangers if you didn't have something kind of powerful driving you. So, I mean, that kind of resonated with me. And I think if you listen to a lot of stories in the fantasy genre, there are kind of these painful stories of beginning. So that was one. Um, I wish I could say all the sad stories were over, but they're not. There's more. But I can guarantee you there are also many stories of triumph and victory over over long odds so many happier things to come as well uh season four begun thank you so much for being here i can't wait to get started and i really appreciate you the listener for being here thanks so much <laughs>